Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hitler, Stalin, Mao and Bomber Harris. A recent book described these men as being amongst the most evil of the 20th century. The last man, Arthur Harris, faces accusations of brutality for his carpet bombing campaign on German cities. Squadron after squadron, 1,250 RAF planes strike the war's most amazing blow. My name is Stephen Edgington, and in this episode of History Defended, I will be examining the controversial wartime commander, on the very night Bomber Harris's statue was erected on the Strand in 1992, it was vandalised with the word shame. Yet to many, Harris is not a war criminal, but a war hero who helped defeat the Nazis and shorten the Second World War. So should Bomber Harris be listed amongst the tyrants of Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany, or should we revere him as a great military commander? To find out, I spoke to the seasoned historian Jeremy Black, and began by asking who Bomber Harris was and why he was important. Arthur Harris was head of Bomber Command from February 1942 for the rest of World War II. And he is important but also contentious because of the role of British bombing of Germany in that conflict. Let's start at the beginning of his life and then we'll go to the controversies which happen a little bit later. So he's born in Gloucestershire in 1892 and he's raised in a public school, in a boarding school, with his, his parents who are off in the Indian civil service. And at 16, he leaves to go to Rhodesia against his father's wishes who wanted him to go into the army. So can you tell us a little bit about his childhood? What was, he, what was his relationship with his dad like? Let's start there. Well, I think it's fair to say that Harris was, like many children of empire, raised in what one might describe as a form of neglect, but that was not how it was seen at the time. The idea that you should go to a boarding school whilst your parents, particularly your father, was away on imperial service seemed absolutely normal. He went to a school called All Hallows in Devon. He was a younger son, so his older brothers had gone to Sherborne and Eton, and he was slightly resentful of not having the same opportunities, but the family only had so much money. He didn't really emotionally relate terribly well to his father, but that again is very much a sort of modern conception. That wouldn't have been a very meaningful one in the 1890s and 1900s. But what he does do is he sees a kind of musical play in which the hero goes off to Rhodesia, which was then a very new British colony, and goes to Rhodesia because Rhodesia is presented as the frontiers of empire often were presented 
presented as a place for meritocracy, not one, as it were, subfused with the British class system. And this very much appeals to Harris. His father had wanted him to go into either the civil service or the army. Harris isn't interested and goes off to Rhodesia. Why does he decide to join the army during World War I when it breaks out? It was very normal in the, at the outbreak of war for young men to volunteer. There was a mass volunteering movement. It was seen in Britain, but it was also seen in the dominions in Australia, New Zealand, Canada and South Africa, and indeed around the empire as a whole. So what Harris did, which is determined to volunteer and volunteer for the first Rhodesian unit raised, was exactly what many young men did. There was also a more particular need for it. Rhodesia itself bordered onto a German colony, what was called German South West Africa, we would now call it Namibia, and there was a sense that if the British did not organise themselves, that it might well be the case that their empire in Africa would be overthrown. And indeed, at the very early stages of World War I uh, in Southern Africa, there was cooperation between the Germans and also Boers in South Africa who resented the result of the Boer War and who looked to Germany for support. So when he comes to Britain, this is his first experiences uh, flying planes himself. So can you talk a little bit about why he decided to join the Royal Flying Corps and what his experiences were like during World War I in that unit? Well, Harris initially wanted to join the army, but there were not opportunities. I mean, he wanted to be an officer. I think they were rather foolish because actually they needed a lot of officers. And the process of what happened at that stage is slightly obscure. But at any rate, he ended up in the Royal Flying Corps, which was suddenly very necessary. The Germans had begun Zeppelin raids on Britain uh, and then had moved on to attacking it with Goethe bombers. And these were of considerable danger. And Harris was trained to fly interceptor missions, first against Zeppelins, airships, and then against uh, German fighters. And as it were, he learnt his aerial skills as an anti-bomber pilot. What was his experience like when dealing with being bombed himself? Did he actually see bombs flying near him? Did he see the impacts that bombing can have on individuals on the ground? Well, Harris would have uh, been aware of the enormous disruption to London caused by bombing. There was bombing elsewhere as well. I mean, the first bombs were dropped, I think I'm right in saying, on Great Yarmouth. But there was extensive disruption, physical damage, some casualties. In the Western Front, two things which are pertinent to the story emerges. First of all, he shows considerable personal courage, shoots down five German planes. Uh, Aerial combat in that period was very risky. I mean, essentially, if you were hit, you were generally going to die. There wasn't really any safety for people who were hit. And, of course, the Germans were good fighters as well. So, you know, it, it was very disruptive, very damaging for individuals, an enormous strain. And Harris has the persistence to come through that and in a leadership capacity as well as personal service. It is also claimed that he saw, he flew over the lines at Passchendaele, Third Ypres, big offensive in late 1917, in which several hundred thousand Allied soldiers died, and that he was convinced of the value of air power by way of avoiding the terrible carnage on the Western Front. And I think it's important to bear in mind that this was a key element for air power enthusiasts, uh, including the people like Trenchard who set up the RAF. It was seen as the necessary way to avoid another repetition of World War I.
So we're laying the seeds here for World War II and Harris's views then, which is really interesting, and how he forms his views in the Royal Flying Corps during World War I. But also between the wars, he remained in the, what became the RAF, and he went all over the empire, went to India, Egypt, Iraq, all of these places. And he was involved in bombing campaigns in various different times throughout the interwar period. I'm going to quote from you, quote from Harris at the time, which is controversial today, and people accuse him of basically bombing civilians and being ruthless and cold-blooded. And I want to, to respond that even in the early years before World War II, this is 20 years before World War II, he said, the only thing the Arab understands is the heavy hand. Can I get you to respond to that quote? Yes, but the point that um, is that you are referring to is what was known as air policing. It was the technique developed uh, in 1919, particularly in campaigns in British Somaliland, but also subsequently in dealing with risings in Iraq or Mesopotamia, as it was then known, and then more generally. And the idea was that Britain's imperial presence in the Middle East would best be sustained by air power because the use of troops would be much more of an effort. Now, I think it's fair to say that the deterrent value of air power, of air overflying, there's a very good book on air power in the Middle East by a man called David Amissi, in which he argues that whereas it was initially quite a shock to people, subsequently, in fact, the shock wore out, that people realised that planes fly, dropping what are called dumb bombs, in other words, non-guided munitions, could do only relatively limited damage. So I think it may be the case that the efficacy of air of air warfare was exaggerated and in part in order to give the RAF a strategic mission in the 1920s, which was a period when otherwise it was very difficult to think what its strategic purpose was. But, you know, we're getting there here towards a broader question of the nature of war and that you're using, as some people have done, the idea of a clear contrast between civilians and non-civilians. I'm not sure that's always a terribly helpful one to describe a lot of warfare. And I would ask listeners to consider how best to define a male civilian if you're, for example, thinking about Afghanistan at the present moment. Even at the time, his contemporaries, some of his contemporaries, viewed this aerial bombing campaign of the RAF during the 1920s and 1930s Only a minority as, viewed it as, as controversial. Uh, yeah, so there was, there was an RAF yeah, uh, but can I just say, uh, can I just say, only a minority viewed it as contentious. I mean, obviously, you will always have, as you would have in campaigns today, and indeed, as you will have in all wars, discussion about strategy, tactics and operational methods. But I think the point to bear in mind is a simple one. Harris does not set the strategy. And I think a lot, and this is something that links the interwar period with World War Two. the idea, and indeed, link to the modern critique, the notion that Harris himself sets the strategy as if he's a free-floating individual is, to put it mildly, an ignorant one. And this is it. And I've been researching lots of criticisms against Harris. And one of the things that comes up is, for example, in the interwar period, the RAF uses gas bombs, uses delayed action bombs. And obviously, this is controversial because some people say, well, this is actually a war crime. And as as I was going to say, there was an RAF commander at the time who resigned after going to a hospital and he saw all these limbless children after a bombing campaign from the RAF. He thought, this is awful. This is terrible. And obviously, Harris was massively involved in that. Although he didn't set the strategy, he was involved and he was in the RAF and he was a commander at the time. So what do you say to these accusations that, in fact, the RAF was using brutal tactics that we would consider terrible moral war crimes today? 
Well, I'm not sure that actually that's a helpful discussion about the use of air power. I mean, air power by its very nature, particularly if you're using unguided weapons, is going to kill people. As I've just argued, you can have a consistent policy if you are a pacifist. If you are not a pacifist, then you start to have to think very carefully. In terms of, in Harris's mind... Uh, the idea of area bombing, as it was called, or carpet bombing, as we later it became known. Did he start using this tactic then? How did this tactic come about? After World War I, a number of theorists, I mean, the most obvious ones are Trenchard in Britain, Mitchell in the United States, Douay in Italy. A number of theorists argued that air power was the way to circumvent the long warfare and carnage of World War One, And remember, World War One was fought by conscript armies. It was fought by those, if you like, who you wish to term civilians. They were just civilians in uniform. And the argument was that you needed to break the morale and the industrial infrastructure of other societies and that this would be both modern and humane. We may not see it in those terms. Those were the terms it was seen at the time. Um, and given that background, Harris is acting or thinking entirely in terms of RAF doctrine of the period. Let's go to 1942, and this is a crucial year because this is the year Harris comes in and he leads Bomber Command. So one accusation against Harris is that he was largely motivated by revenge. And I'm going to quote a quote from Harris at the time in 1942 when he comes into Bomber Command and he said this, The Nazis entered this war under the rather childish delusion that they were going to bomb everyone else and nobody was going to bomb them at Rotterdam, London, Warsaw and a half a hundred other places they put their rather naive theory into operation. They sowed the wind, and now they are going to reap the whirlwind. So what do you say to this accusation that Harris was largely motivated by revenge rather than any sort of military strategy? Well, I would say that, and I'm sure you're just asking me questions, that just shows complete naivety. The fact of the matter is you will offer rhetorical statements which do not necessarily explain your motivation. There is a lot of strategic logic behind Birmingham, Germany, but you also have to offer the public a sense that, you know, attacks are being made. If you read the newspapers at the time of the Thousand Bomber raid on Cologne, the whole theme was we are able to strike back. That was regarded as a crucially important theme in terms of convincing the public that something was being done. Let me also add, before we get out to it, but because this is really important, that people tend to forget that the intensification of the bombing campaign against Germany in 1944-45, which includes the devastating bombing of Dresden, was at the very same time that the Germans had intensified their campaign, except it was being mounted with V1s and V2s. So the blunt necessity was to show the public that actually blows could be hit back. So is that fighting fire with fire then in that sense? It is maintaining an appropriate response. So one accusation against Harris at the time and many people found him quite abrupt 
he wasn't afraid to speak his mind, I think it's fair to say, even to the point of rudeness. Do you think that those accusations are accurate, that he was a sort of almost a rude man? To, and, he would, and also he failed to listen to advice from his contemporaries. Well, there's several different points here. Yeah. I mean, first of all, he was certainly a man that believed in getting things done. It was no accident that at Staff College, where he had loathed most of the army people that he met, thought that they were more interested in hunting than in actually being professionals. The one man he really liked was Field Marshal, well, the man who was later Field Marshal Montgomery. Similarly, Montgomery had a reputation for curtness. But the, as you may know, there's a book which all listeners would be well advised to read called On the Psychology of Military Incompetence by Norman Dixon. And Dixon's point, Dixon himself had, you know, was uh, involved with the British Army. Dixon's point was that in peacetime, you promote the very people you need to get rid of in wartime, because in wartime, you are concerned with competence, determination and persistence rather than being a decent chap. Harris is best known for his uh, support of this policy of area bombing, carpet bombing in Germany. They call it terror bombing. So obviously there's a bit different perspective there. And one of the most famous raids, and we'll get on to Dresden later on, but this is in 1943, was against Hamburg. In one night, it's said that 40 to 60,000 Germans died, mostly civilians, because they would use a strategy which would basically light the entire city on fire and overwhelm the local fire services. And I'm going to read a quote from Harris again at the time, which is sort of long, but I think it's really important to get the idea behind his motivation. So he says, The aim of the combined bomber offensive should be unambiguously stated as the destruction of German cities, the killing of German workers and the disruption of civilised life throughout Germany. The destruction of houses, public utilities, transport and lives, the creation of a refugee problem on an unprecedented scale and the breakdown of morale both at home and at battlefronts by fear of extended and intensified bombing are accepted and intended aims of our bombing policy. They are not byproducts of attempts to hit factories. So the accusation against Harris is that he was motivated by killing civilians, by people who are not involved directly in the war. So what do you say to that? Well, can I just say, first of all, you've got to... I'm a historian by background, all right? So let me just make a simple point that you've, you've got to be very careful how you use textual evidence. The fact that somebody says something does not mean that's their only motivation, all right? But it is certainly the case that they wished to wreck German morale and to that extent were quite willing to kill people. No two ways about that. That doesn't mean it was the only purpose. Uh, what I would say on the Hamburg bombings is read Goebbels' diaries. And it would have been interested if you quoted from Goebbels' diaries on this, because as you will know, if you've read them, Goebbels recalls the enormous shock to German morale caused by the bombing. And in fact, it gave a sense that the Nazi party was failing to be able to defend its own civilians, which is true. And although this, you know, I mean, as a strategic point, where was the Luftwaffe spending much of its effort in 43, 44 and into 45? The Luftwaffe was spending a lot of its effort trying to defend German airspace against British and American bombers. Uh, I remember talking to two veterans some years ago, two veterans at D-Day, and they said to me, one of the things that was most striking was when you heard an aircraft, you knew it would be an Allied aircraft. And that was because the German planes that should have been in the air over Normandy, or for that matter, in the summer of 1944, should have been in the air over Minsk, uh, fighting 
you know, in respectively Anglo-American or Soviet troops were un- in the air over Germany. So I would say there was a strategic purpose. I would say German morale was hit hard. I would also say that, and I think this is an important point. Uh, I used to teach a course on World War II. I've written many books on it, and I hope listeners will read some of them. But one of the key things about World War II is the thing nobody really talks about, which is that after the war, there is no German resistance movement. What the war had shown is that the Nazi party was unable to defend the German public. Many members of that public had supported the Nazi party. The Nazi party was not some kind of accretion that had just been laid on German society. It enjoyed widespread popularity. What actually bombing did was help not only to wreck the war economy, but also to wreck morale. And the after effect of that was very clearly seen in the absence of a resistance movement. There are a lot of statistics that are bounded around about, by historians about how many people, civilians, died from Allied bombing during the war on the German side. And I've seen anywhere from 300,000 to 650,000. But I think it's widely accepted that hundreds of thousands of German civilians were killed in these bombing raids, which were huge. And, you know, this is area bombing. So, of course, many people are going to die. On top of that, millions and millions more were made homeless. You know, Harris, I said in that quote previously, wanted to create a refugee problem so that Germany had that as well in the war. As he did. Is this moral? I'm not sure that the term morality is terribly helpful when one's talking about Nazi Germany, a society which slaughters... Wait wait a minute. I'm not sure it's necessarily moral when you're talking about Nazi Germany, a society that slaughtered millions of other people. So I'm not particularly sure that's terribly pertinent. The most recent work that I've read that is very persuasive to me is Tammy Biddle's account of the strategic, because I'm a strategist, of the strategic drive for why the bomber rate was pushed up in the last six months of the year. And the point she makes is that in 1944, the Germans did not collapse, as had been rather foolishly, in my view, anticipated, that in fact German resilience was demonstrated in the Hunsrück at Arnhem in the Bulge counter-offensive, that the Germans had st- were stepping up and killing a lot of people with the V2s, that the Germans were bringing out their new jet aircraft and indeed their new uh, submarines were about to come out, and there was seen to be an absolute necessity to drive it home. And if that involved heavy casualties, that it was total war. I think I should also ask listeners who are concerned about this issue of morality as to what precisely they would have liked to have seen happen if Hitler had remained in power for longer. Are they basically saying that they would have liked hundreds of thousands more Soviets to have died, hundreds of thousands more British or Americans to have died, so that their morality today can be be satisfied. That can be their view. I don't think it's a very attractive view. And of course, if the Nazi regime and the German support for it had been more robust, then presumably the first atomic bomb would have to have been dropped on Berlin. So one of the corollaries of the success of the overthrow of the Germans in the spring of 1945 was that the first atomic bomb did not need to be thus dropped. 
One of the most controversial issues, as you mentioned earlier, was the bombing of Dresden. And there's a really interesting book, Slaughterhouse-Five. I highly recommend people to read it from an American POW who was in Dresden who ex- explains his experiences of what that bombing was like. And I think 25,000 people died in one night. Again, it was another issue where they were dropping these incendiary bombs and the entire city basically went alight. And you have these awful stories of people crowding in tunnels and being burnt alive and being sort of their bodies would form into one mush because it was so hot and just these absolutely most devastating experiences on the ground in Dresden. And the reason that Dresden is so controversial, even more so than even Hamburg, for example, is that there is an argument to say that Dresden didn't contain any military targets of any significance. So what's the point in bombing Dresden? Dresden also didn't have much air defence from a German point of view because the Germans thought, well, why would they bomb Dresden? There's nothing there. It's sort of just a a hub full of refugees. How do you respond to the arguments that I've just laid out around Dresden? Well, on my three trips to Dresden, it's quite, which I went for purposes of research, not on this period, but on my three trips to Dresden, it's obvious as it would be to anybody that's visited Dresden and had been to Dresden at the time. It's an enormously important rail hub. And on top of that, there were war industries in the area. And on top of that, the Soviets had asked for it to be bombed. And on top of that, bombing was being used in these weeks and months at the end of the war. Nobody knew it would be exactly the end of the war in order to try and wreck the German system. So that essentially is the answer. Can I just say, the Kurt Vonnegut book is like most books on war and indeed a lot of the stuff that comes out at the present moment face of battle counts okay that can be useful in order to remind people what is obvious unless you're a complete idiot that war is not pleasant that lots of people die in war in horrible means okay yes that does not explain strategic decisions or operational practices. So simply telling somebody that war is a horrible process does not answer any particular question. And on the broader issue of morality, I would actually say that although there were one or two, you didn't find large numbers of people, whether Jewish or not, who had been in the uh, concentration camps to say, oh my God, it was a terrible thing that the bombing took place. Nor did you find, I think it's roughly, wasn't it about 9.7 million forced labourers moved to Germany? You know, Russians, French, Belgians, Poles, it would have been us if we'd been conquered. I don't think you found very many of them to see the same. So forgive me, but I do not share your views on the moral compass of this. So Churchill at the time, he supports Harris mostly throughout the war, but by the time it's getting to the end of the war, and that's when we're talking about Dresden, he begins to start rowing with Harris about this campaign. I'm going to quote from Churchill in March 1945, and he says this to Harris. It seems to me the moment has come when the question of bombing of German cities simply for the sake of increasing the terror should be reviewed. Otherwise, we shall come into control of an utterly ruined land. So even at the time, and it wasn't just Churchill, there are other military commanders and contemporaries of Harris who disagree with this Well, can policy. I just say, if you read that Churchill quote, what he is concerned about is the nature of the society they're going to be taking over. He is not saying it is a bad thing to kill civilians. OK, so let's be clear about it. And obviously, that is true. It was a nuisance to take over a badly disrupted society. There's no two ways about it. It would have been better, by the way, if Churchill had been a 
little tighter on Harris for a completely different reason. Harris's major flaw in the war was, number one, that he didn't allow sufficient long-range bombers to be used for anti-submarine activity in the Atlantic. At the time, Churchill complained about that, but didn't do anything about it when he was in a position to do so. And number two, I think you could argue that in the background to the Normandy campaign, Harris remained too committed to the idea of bombing Berlin. So there are more specific questions that you can ask. The ones on morality don't help us. We were fighting a world war against the most vicious and brutal regime. So I really don't think those are important. But the other ones, I think, are specific critiques that can be made. Moving morality to one side, let's talk about efficacy. And I think you, you obviously this is your entire experience of expertise is on whether this was effective or not. So there are arguments, and you've mentioned some of them already, that German morale wasn't broken, that they still fought until 1945. The Wehrmacht and, and the SS, some major parts of that were still fanatic and still supporting Hitler until the last days in the bunker. So the idea that this broke German morale may be wrong. And the other thing is that the, the other aim of the campaign, obviously, is to try and destroy Germany's capacity to wage war. So it's factories and it's armaments and everything else. And again, there are arguments to say, well, look, it, it didn't destroy major German industry. They were still able to fight until the very last days of the war. So what do you say about this, this idea of whether the entire strategy worked or was effective. Right, let's take the second one first. Once Albert Speer was put into command, German war production increased. We don't know how far it would have increased were it not for the bombing. So I think it's fair to say that that's one point that needs to be borne in mind. Second of all, the Germans were running short of fuel. And that was very definitely because that was a major focus of Allied bombing. If you look at, it's mentioned in my Air Power book, if you look at the hours of training that Luftwaffe pilots had before being put up, it falls dramatically precisely because of fuel shortages. So there is an enormous drain. And on top of that, the nature of a modern industrial economy is that it works on integrating production on different sites. Attacking transport links very much diminished that. So I think it's fair to say that the German war economy and the German military machine was considerably hit by the bombing campaign. Now, obviously, we then move, as you are interested in doing, to the question of um, the efficacy as far as civilians are concerned. The point I've already made, which is that civilian resistance uh, diminishes and that there's no post-war resistance, I think is a very important one. And I think I would say that, yes, some German units do fight very toughly to the end. Equally, other German units do not. So I think one has to be very cautious on this. Some interesting work by Neil Greg, a very good piece in the Historical Journal on the uh, impact of bombing on Nuremberg, on the morale in Nuremberg in 1944. And he concludes that this hit morale quite hard. I'd be a bit wary about saying that bombing was ineffective. I mean, there are practical issues here. I mean, was it worth the manpower that was lost in it? Uh, That's another question. But because if you're part of a war system and you do not use a significant part of your military in order to help the pursuit of the war, then those people who are being asked to risk their lives have a right to ask, well, what on earth is going on here? 
Let's finish by talking about Bomber Harris himself. And he, this is a man who was controversial throughout his life. We've talked about how some of his contemporaries disagreed with him vehemently on his strategy and his ideas. And when his statue came up in 1992 in London, the word shame was vandalised on it beneath. You know, at the time, again, it was controversial. Recently, two academics published a book that made a big headline in the Daily Mail about the most evil men of the 20th century. And they had Pol Pot, they had Stalin, they had Hitler... And they had Bomber Harris in there. So can you give your overall defence of Harris? This is what I'm asking to all of my historians. So what is his overall defence? Well, first of all, I think it's an absurdity to put him on an equal position with these other individuals. Not only because you have to look at the intentionality of what he was doing, but also because he was part of a war machine, part of a war machine of a democratic state, rather than somebody who was serving a psychopath. And I think one could fairly say that Hitler, Stalin and Pol Pot were psychopaths. I do not think that is a fair judgment to neither Churchill or Harris. I think the combined bomber offensive, because of course the Americans were part of it as well, the combined bomber offensive was an important and necessary tool in the war against Nazi Germany. I think it reflected the particular strength of the British military uh, machine as a whole. I think it did a lot of damage to the German war economy and I think it distracted the Luftwaffe into primarily into the defence of German airspace and made sure therefore that they were less able to support the Wehrmacht on both the Eastern and the Western fronts. For those and other reasons, I think it was very necessary. There can be individual criticisms of Harris, not least because I think he didn't accept sufficiently the importance of the anti-U-boat campaign in the Battle of the Atlantic. And I think there are one or two cases where he can be otherwise castigated over the bombing campaign, particularly persisting in the campaign against Berlin, which was a very difficult target. But Allowing for all of that, he was an impressive leader, and I think it is very wrong indeed that we have this denigration of those people who in the, par- in the past risked their lives. Harris himself had risked his life in World War I. He knew what he was doing when he sent men to risk their lives. Would that that was true with everybody that does so in similar command positions. We want to know what you think about Bomber Harris. Was he a great commander who helped shorten the Second World War, or was he a war criminal who needlessly killed thousands of German civilians? If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave this episode a review and let me know. Next week, we will be discussing Oliver Cromwell, the great saviour of parliamentary democracy, or the butcher of Ireland. History Defended is a Telegraph original podcast. Find out more and listen at telegraph.co.uk slash podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.